1: means awake or the awakened one, and for many of us, the goal of Dharma practice is precisely this, to awaken from the sleep of ignorance, from the dream of delusion, and we actually have a glimpse of this possibility every time we wake up in the morning, as we awaken from deep sleep or we come out of a dream dream state. We come into a waking consciousness which seems somehow more alive, more connected, more real. But the Buddha pointed out that even in our normal waking state, when we feel most awake and aware, we're still asleep we're lost in and identified with all the various habit patterns of our minds. We see this very clearly even after the first day of a retreat. I'm sure you've noticed how often the mind hops on trains of association, gets lost in thought. Memories, judgments, reactions, plans, desires, or simply a stream of random thoughts which carry us away again and again. Even in our normal waking state, what we call wakefulness, most of the time, we're really not aware of what's going on. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a particular state mentioned that with a proper understanding Very much lends itself to liberation, to the opening of the eye of wisdom. And this is the state called the bardo. You know, we're perhaps most familiar with it in the teachings of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, where there's a very detailed description of what happens in the time between one life and the next. And the point of those teachings is that in that state, there are profound opportunities for liberation, for awakening. For most of us, though, the bardo between lifetimes is probably hypothetical. You know, Unless we happen to have some direct memory of it. But the term Bardo itself simply means intermediate state. It means a transition state. And in traveling a lot uh, this summer, just before coming here, I had a really interesting Bardo experience, which I thought I'd tell you about. I've been doing a lot of moving around, a lot of traveling, and I was in Europe, teaching, and I was on planes and trains and buses and in one of the segments of this trip, you know with a lot of traveling, uh, I landed in England, and I had to take a uh, bus transfer bus from Gatwick Airport, where I landed outside of London to Heathrow airport you know, and so there was all the tumult of traveling and trying to catch the bus and Know, make the connections. But on that bus from Gatwick to Heathrow, they should put up a little plaque. In some way, my mind disengaged from time. You know, I had left where I had come from and I hadn't yet arrived at where I was going. And it was either out of tiredness or just enjoying a time with nothing to do my mind became very quiet became very reflective and quite unattached to being anywhere you know, and perhaps you've had that same feeling sometimes in flying you know you're not reading a book and you're not watching a movie and maybe just looking out the window you know, we enter into a kind of timeless space in those moments, we drop out of the stories of our lives. And we are no longer where we came from. We're not yet arrived at where we're going to. We simply are resting in awareness without attachment to any particular thing, to any particular state, even to any particular outcome. You know, And it's in precisely these moments of timelessness, of not wanting, of not craving, when the empty, open, non-clinging nature of awareness reveals itself. That's the opportunity of the bardo, the intermediate state where the nature of awareness shows itself. At these times, it's as if the mind itself is inclining towards wisdom. And it provokes, it often provokes, a deeper than usual kind of investigation. And we begin to ask ourselves, what does keep us enmeshed in the stories of our lives? You know, in the intermediate space between events, it's as if we step out of the continuum for a bit and we can reflect, we can look, we can investigate, how do I stay so enmeshed in all the activities and stories of our lives, the dramas, the desires? How do I get caught over and over again by the hands of time? Is it possible to be free? So the question for us is how to bring the great potential for awakening that often happens in these bardos of transition states, how do we bring that potential for awakening into the midst of our everyday busy lives? What can remind us again and again to truly wake up? In the Buddhist tradition, there are four reflections that have this power, that have the power to awaken us from delusion, to awaken from habitual actions and tendencies and responses, from the forward-plunging momentum of samsaric seductiveness. I mean, this is something we're all familiar with, it's as if we're just caught in the momentum of the great seduction. These reflections, which will be familiar to you, there's nothing new, but it's important to hear them not as philosophic musings. It's not just Buddhist philosophy that we think about. They're really profound tools of practice that have the power in the midst of our daily lives to turn our minds towards the Dharma. And they are particularly powerful in the bardo of a retreat. This is really a bardo. You know, you've left your life behind. You haven't yet picked it up. It's the intermediate state where there are so many possibilities for understanding If we consider these four reflections during this time, when our minds and hearts are so open, they really enter into our mindstream. They can influence our mindstream, sowing the seeds of remembrance throughout our lives when we are more engaged in activities. So the first of these reflections Is a reflection on the preciousness of our human birth. How many times have you heard this? Probably for those of you who are experienced meditators, probably many times. But how often do we really reflect on it? How often do we really take the deep meaning of it? The Buddha had such a vast vision of the universe, so many different realms of existence, you know, higher ones and lower ones, countless world systems, immeasurable expanses of space and time. The Buddhist worldview is, is huge, you know, lives without beginning. And he taught how difficult and rare it is to have a human birth. In this vast scope of the universe, taking birth as a human is difficult, it's rare, it's precious. He said it's like arriving at a great treasure island where every possible happiness and the highest good is attainable, is achievable. I mean, it's an amazing opportunity when we reflect on it. It's just normally we're so caught up in our lives, we don't stop to appreciate the possibilities that this precious human birth offers. You know, as humans, as we know, there's just that right mix of happiness and suffering that reminds us, to wake up. The heaven realms are a little too happy. The lower realms, a little too much suffering. Here it's just right, you know, enough ease so that we actually can pay attention and enough suffering to keep poking us to look. So when we have the great good fortune of having the time, the interest, the motivation, you know, for spiritual practice, for a spiritual investigation. Can we see and appreciate these circumstances as a great gift? It's really a tremendous blessing in our lives and not take them for granted or think that these conditions will always be there. It's a precious human birth. It's precious, it's rare. This reflection on the nature of the human realm and the opportunities for awakening that it provides can be the cause of a great joy and a great faith in our lives, even during times of suffering. Because as we know, this life is not a bliss trip. There's... Lots of ups and downs and times when we're happy and times when we're not. So there's plenty of suffering that we go through in our lives. But in this precious human birth, even suffering can be a cause of joy and faith. Why? Now the Buddha talked of two kinds of suffering. Suffering that leads simply to more suffering when we're in a downward Spiral, and he talked of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Most of you probably know of our wonderful teacher Deepa Ma, you know, the Bengali woman who died some years ago now, who had tremendous suffering in her life, tremendous grief. You know, she was married at a very young age, as was common. She was married at betrothed at twelve, married at fourteen didn't have children for a long time, which was a source of great sadness, and then had three children, two of whom died soon after they were born. Her husband died. She was overwhelmed with grief. And she said, in, in recounting her story, she said she, she almost died from grief. She didn't leave her bed for five years. I and mean, this, was, this was overwhelming. She was living in Burma at the time. And somebody said, if you don't do something about your mind, you will surely die. And so she went to one of the meditation centers and she just had this extraordinary, what in Buddhism is called parami, or background of her mind, and in a very short time attained high stages of realization, high stages of concentration, all the different psychic powers that you read about, I mean, an amazing manifestation of accomplishment and attainment. And it was precisely the intensity of her suffering which so motivated her great realization. So that's the possibility for us. In this precious human birth, it's almost alchemical. We can transform suffering into enlightenment. So this is the first reflection that turns our mind towards the dharma, the preciousness of our opportunities as a human being. The second reflection that turns our mind towards the dharma, that helps awaken us right in the midst of our busy lives. Again, this is not about Buddhist philosophy. It's about what we do with our minds how we see, how we perceive. So the second reflection is the contemplation of impermanence. Now what's so striking about this is that we could go up to anybody on the streets of Woodacre, San Francisco, any place, and ask them, do things change? Everybody would say things change. It's not a secret. It's not an esoteric teaching. And yet, we know it, and everyone knows it, on an intellectual level, on a conceptual level. But somehow, we need to bring it down to the level of a living wisdom. It's not enough, just, oh yes, everything changes. (laughs) This reflection, as one that turns the mind towards the Dharma, requires something more. It requires a deep looking into and seeing directly, you know, intimately, the truth of change. There was a student of Suzuki Roshi, who, as you know, was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And this one student said, Roshi, I have been listening to your lectures for years, but I just don't understand. Could you please put the teachings in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? So as the story goes, everyone laughed, Suzuki Roshi laughed, and then he said, everything changes. Then he asks for another question. (laughs) If we had to put Buddhism into one phrase, everything changes. Because if we could really see that and really know that deeply and intimately, the implication of that insight would be that we don't cling to anything The most basic principle in Buddhism is that all things arise out of conditions, that things happen because the appropriate conditions for their arising are there, and that these conditions are always changing. Now, so many times we've seen or know people who are living peaceful, stable, comfortable lives and then in one moment something can happen something can change and everything is turned upside down now it might be a natural disaster might be an earthquake or a flood or a fire it could be a random act of violence could be a war could be a disease none of us are exempt from these changes We think because our lives are stable and relatively comfortable at any particular time, we just assume that it will go on like that because we have not contemplated deeply and clearly the great truth of change. We can experience this truth also in more ordinary ways just in the ordinary experiences of our lives. And when we're paying close attention, when we're not distracted, we see that in every moment, things are disappearing and new things are arising. It's not only each day or in each hour, but in every single moment, something arises and passes, arises and passes. It's like water flowing over a waterfall. So if you can remember between now and the end of the talk, the end of the talk, when you go out, you know, when you begin walking, just watch carefully the flow of changing experiences. You know, the flow of changing sights and sounds and the touch of the air on your skin and the sensations of movement. You know, as you walk and the different thoughts that come and go and the mood that you might be in. Just the very ordinary flow of events that are happening all the time when our attention is keen. When we're really paying attention carefully, this truth of change, of momentary change becomes so obvious and so vivid. Notice what happens to each of these experiences as they arise. Do they last even more than a moment? The problem is that the truth of this is so ordinary that we mostly have stopped paying attention to it. It's not that it's hard to see. It's just the nature of everything that happens. But because it's so ordinary, we're not understanding it, we're not seeing it. And so we stay caught in our attachments, in our desires. When we don't pay attention to this truth of change, we really miss the opportunity to practice the mind of relinquishment, the mind of letting go. Ajahn Chah expressed this so well, you know, the great Thai forest master. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. It's not complicated. It's not easy to do because of our habituated responses of mind, but it's not complicated. And so this is the second reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma, right in the midst of our ordinary lives, our ordinary daily lives. We can train ourselves to pay attention to the changing nature of whatever's arising. Some careful observations of other obvious truths also has the power to jolt us out of, perhaps, our usual sense of complacency, out of our deeply rooted habit patterns of clinging. A simple and profound reflection, something we all know, but perhaps rarely give sustained attention to, is the fact that the end of birth is death. Our lives are only getting shorter and shorter. That's the direction it's going in. We seem to notice this more as we get older. You know, It becomes more and more obvious, but it's equally true of all of us. The end of birth is death, inevitably. This is just what's happening. But until we're facing it directly for ourselves, often our awareness of death or our contemplation of death It's often about other people. It's other people who seem to be dying and we don't make the connection. We need to turn that reflection back onto our own lives, our own experience. And we don't often consider our own deaths and in our culture in particular, you know, it's considered a little morbid. You know, why would you want to think about your death? And yet from the Buddhist perspective, it's a reflection that liberates the heart and mind. The Buddha suggested thinking about it every single day. So just as an exercise, you know, at some point, imagine yourselves on your deathbed. And since, you know, for right now, it is in our imagination, uh, we can give ourselves a little comfort and let it be a nice, comfortable deathbed. (laughs) Bed, soft pillow, nice mattress, but we're dying. You know, so just imagine that. You know, the senses are getting weak. There's probably discomfort or pain in the body. Maybe the mind is getting a little confused, not alert. Just imagine what it would be like. Okay, this dying process is happening. And right at that time, as you're imagining that, as you're visualizing that, what is it that we're most holding on to? What is it that we don't want to let go of? Can we practice simply allowing, letting be whatever the process is? And of course, the trick of this is not to wait until we're dying to practice this. This is what we want to be practicing now in each moment. T.S. Eliot in the four quartets, beautiful few lines when he really this so succinctly this possibility of openness, of relinquishment. And he wrote, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Yeah, you know, such a beautiful expression. Can we connect with that mind, that heart, of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything? Not holding on. Allowing. Openness. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. So as we reflect on this truth of impermanence, and again, as a reminder, it's not an intellectual reflection. This is a practice, as we actually practice seeing the impermanence in all of these different aspects of our lives, whether it's moment to moment, whether it's the big changing circumstances of our lives, whether it's the understanding that the end of birth is death, at whatever level. We are connecting with this truth of impermanence. It's helpful to see what's our attitude about it. Do we let the truth of it, the magnitude of it, do we let it in? Does it inspire us? Does it frighten us? We really need to look to see the effect of it as we're doing this practice. One of... The people who has most inspired me in this regard is Henry David Thoreau. And many of you probably know he died quite young. I think he was in his 40s. And I believe it was of TB. Very sick, you know, and a lot of pain in the body. And this is from a biography of Thoreau. Somebody was writing about him and the time of his death. They said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I've heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me, this, this line <laughs> is the line. <laughs> okay. This line is our practice. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. That's remarkable. The mind just opening to, allowing, conforming to the condition of the body. There was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. That's quite a way of relating to experience. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die, so of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. And when his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. (laughs) It's quite amazing the possibilities, you know, and, and this is our practice. This is precisely the kind of attitude, the kind of understanding that we're cultivating right here on retreat, moment to moment, with our experience. So the third reflection that turns our minds towards the Dharma is what is known in the Buddhist teachings as the law of karma, which is the understanding, as you know, that all of our actions have consequences, that actions bring results. There are two parts of this reflection that we sometimes miss. And we all live our lives knowing on some level that actions bring results. That's why we do things. You know, we do things because we're expecting a certain result. But what we don't often understand is from the Buddhist point of view, it's not just that an action brings the immediate visible result, you know, in the near future. The Buddha is saying that each of our actions brings many, many, many kinds of results over time. You know, and so we may do something now, and it bears a karmic karmic fruit perhaps in years, you know, or in the Buddhist scheme of things, maybe even over lifetimes. So when we hear actions bring results, we need to understand that in a very expanded way. And the second piece that sometimes we overlook and the Buddha made this very important clarification. And it's a clarification which is really makes possible, you know, our own happiness and peace in the world, and that is that what most completely determines the result of an action is not the action itself, but the motivation behind it. So the Buddha is pointing to the overarching importance of motivation. In one teaching it says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. When the Dalai Lama was speaking about this, he said something that was so un-American. He said... The true value of an action is not measured by its success or failure, but by the motivation behind it. Mostly in our society, we measure the success of an action. Did it succeed or did it fail? That's how we measure the value of it. And from the Dalai Lama's perspective or Buddhist understanding, the success or failure is much less important than the quality of the motivation of the action. When we take this to heart and we begin to really look carefully at our motivations, motivations behind our speech, behind our actions, behind what thoughts we give energy to, when we practice in this way, it gives us the opportunity to make wiser choices in our lives. When we're unaware, we're simply playing out the habit patterns of our conditioning. It's not easy to do. This is a very challenging practice to become aware of our motivations. They're often very subtle, they may be obscured, Uh, They're often mixed. You know, in the midst of an action, we may have a whole series of different motivations. One story which illustrates this, which many of you have heard before, but it's it's really a, a good example of how our minds work. Years ago, when my colleague Sharon Salzberg was writing a book, I came across a story... In one of the suttas, the discourses that I thought would be good for her book. Now, just as some background, you have to know that for teachers, a good story is gold. We don't give away these stories so easily. Okay, so I came across this story. My first thought was, oh, this would be great for a book. Second thought, No. I'm gonna keep this story for myself. <laughs> Third thought. No, that's just being selfish. I'm gonna give her the story. But I'm gonna tell her what I'm going through so she'll be in my debt. <laughs> 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 and I just watched my mind because I was on retreat at the time, and so I was able just to watch this series, you know, of thoughts and motivations. And after a stream of these thoughts, I began to wonder, where in the midst of all this is any purity of motive? You know, it seemed so... impure. And then I realized, yeah, there were a lot of mixed motivations, but there was purity in that very first moment, the very first thought. Yeah, I'm going to give her the story. And I realized that even though there was a whole sequence of mixed motives, If I could see them, it was always possible to let the unwholesome ones go and go back to that first impulse, here's the story, which I ended up doing and she didn't even want it. (laughs) But it makes a good story. (laughs) And it does point just to the complexity of this particular practice However, given the importance of motivation in terms of understanding the law of karma and how our lives unfold, whether they unfold towards greater suffering or towards greater happiness, it becomes essential that we refine our sensibilities, that we really learn to look with, it really takes a great honesty and a courage to see, okay, what actually are my motives behind this action? behind this interaction. Now, Steve mentioned last night that people come to retreat also with a variety of motivations. For some people, it really is a time just of cooling out of stress reduction, which is great. We need it. For some people, it may be you know, that we're in the midst of some real psychological or emotional suffering, dukkha, and we, we want to understand it or disentangle a bit. For other people, it may be the aspiration for awakening. What is transforming is the understanding that no matter what our individual motivation may be, and they may all be different, all of them can be held in the larger context that we're not practicing for ourselves alone, that we can undertake our practice no matter what our motive, that we can undertake our practice with the aspiration that it be for the welfare and the happiness and the benefit of all beings. So we take our individual motivation and put it into this very large and ennobling context. Yes, I'm doing this work for whatever reason, for the welfare, for the benefit, for the happiness of all beings. And this motivation in Buddhism is called bodhijitta, literally means the awakened heart. It's beautifully expressed by the great Indian adept Shantideva, who was, I think, 8th century or 7th century in India, And he's he's a great inspiration for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. One of his great works is A Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. So it's a guide to living an enlightened life with this aspiration of bodhicitta. This is a few lines from what is called the Seven Branched Prayer, and it expresses this aspiration. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitude of living beings, may I be their ground in sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed, May I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. That's an amazing aspiration, to dedicate one's life, to dedicate one's practice to the welfare and the benefit and the happiness of all beings. You know, it's possible to hear these words and become inspired by this tremendous generosity of spirit that this becomes the purpose, the overriding motivation of our lives. <laughs> but we might also feel a little overwhelmed, a little daunted by it. You know, is it even possible to live with that degree of compassion, with the aspiration to help all beings? So in this, in this practice, in this contemplation of motivation, we really need a tremendous humility. Because I think it's really a matter of simply planting some seeds and watering the seeds of the aspiration. We might follow the uh, guidelines of the Dalai Lama when he said, I cannot pretend to practice bodhijitta but deep inside me I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. You know, so if the Dalai Lama is saying he can't really pretend to practice bodhicitta in its fullness, so we need to you know, just have a great deal of humility about our own practice and our lives, but deep inside of us we can realize how valuable and beneficial it is, and it can become a reference point for us. You know, we, can, we can look at our lives in the context of that reference point. So there's the mind-changing reflection on the precious human birth the reflection and the refinement of our perception of change and impermanence. There's the reflection on the law of karma and the overriding importance of motivation and understanding what our motivations are. And the fourth reflection, that in the midst of our daily lives, in the midst of the busyness of our lives, can turn our mind towards the Dharma is the reflection on what is called the defects of samsara. Now, samsara is a Pali and Sanskrit word, and it means or refers to perpetual wandering. You know, according to the Buddhist teachings, until we awaken from this dream of ignorance, We're all wandering through different realms of experience, from the lowest to the highest, and back again. It's like a bee buzzing around in a jar. You know, it buzzes to the top, it buzzes to the bottom, circling around. And we can see this process within one lifetime. We can see this process within one day. Just today, or you can watch tomorrow, how many different worlds do we create in our minds? You know, riding the roller coaster of continually changing moods and emotions and thoughts. You might be sitting having very happy thoughts about your family and then feeling frustrated about something at work. Maybe there's excitement about some future plan, some vacation you're going to take or anger at somebody difficult in your life. Despair about the state of the world, calm from the meditation, or being out in nature. And it's just this endless cycle of thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations and experiences without end. The play of the mind simply goes on and on and on. That's the meaning of samsara. Now, in contrast to this cycle of momentary rebirths in different states, just as a glimpse of another possibility, notice carefully the experience when you emerge, when you awaken from being lost in a thought or an emotion. You know, during the day, you know what it's like to be lost. You know, we're watching the breath or something and then just carried away in some thought, lost, 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 and then all of a sudden we awaken. We become mindful that we've been thinking. Usually people jump right back to some object. Instead of jumping right back, pay careful attention to that moment of waking up from being lost. That is a taste a real genuine taste of wakefulness. So instead of judging ourselves for having been lost, we can take delight in the fact of awakening. So you can be delighted thousands of times a day (laughs) because as many times as you get lost, that many times do you eventually wake up pay attention to what the quality of the mind is like. could; it's somewhat analogous, not exactly, but it's somewhat analogous to stepping out of this samsaric cycle. You know, it's like how we feel when we come out of a movie theater, so engaged with the movie, so caught up emotionally, and we step out of the theater, you know, that sudden momentary reality shift. Oh, yeah, that was just a movie. But we need to wake up to emerge from the movies of our minds. What seems so real and solid from one perspective becomes truly transparent from another. You know, when you wake up from being lost in a thought, what reality does that thought have? We were so lost in it, so engaged, and so much drama. And then we wake up and say, oh, it's just a thought. Psh, nothing much there. So we get a real taste of the possibility of freedom. And the story that very powerfully illustrates this for me, this is a story I've told many times because it's just so striking. It's about the death of His Holiness the 16th Karmapa. You know, this was the head of one of the great Tibetan lineages. And the 17th is here now in a young man. So this happened, you know, quite a few years ago. So the 16th Karmapa was very sick. He was in Illinois, in a small town outside of Chicago, dying of cancer, body riddled with cancer. And he had a lot of students around. And as he was dying, they were full of a lot of grief and despair and sadness. And it said that at a certain point, the Kamapa turned to them and said, Don't worry, nothing happens. You know, when we were in the movie and this. Life and death and romances and love and being chased and falling off cliffs. and <laughs> Is anything really happening? None of that is really happening. It's just pixels of light creating an appearance which we believe in. From the perspective of a great enlightened being like the Karmapa, all of this that we take to be so real and so solid It's like those pixels of light. Don't worry, nothing happens. So, these are the four reflections which can turn our mind towards the Dharma. Reflection on the precious human birth. A genuine contemplation of impermanence. understanding deeply the law of karma, that our actions have results, many results, over time, and that the results are determined by motivation. So highlighting the importance of understanding our own motivations behind our actions. And the fourth is understanding the defects of samsara, just this endless cycling you know, of mind states and worlds when we're lost in what happens and the possibility of emerging from that into freedom. So I'd like to close with just a wonderful teaching from a great Tibetan master. His name was Patrul Rinpoche. I believe he lived just around the turn of the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century. And he was a vagabond monk. You know, he, so he just wandered around in the mountains of Tibet. And people didn't realize, many people didn't realize that he was this great enlightened being. Um, but every once in a while, these teachings would come forth and people would really know who he was. So this is... From a teaching called Advice from Me to Myself. <laughs> so, this is advice Patrol Rinpoche is giving to himself. And given that he was a great realized being, we should pay attention. <laughs> Listen up, old bad karma Patrol, you dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. You beat your little damaru, those little Tibetan drums, and your audience thinks it's charming to hear You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point.